is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon and a happy Friday afternoon to you. Today, the relationship between Australia and China, it seems to be, well, getting back on track anyway. So how close are we to seeing all of that lobster, beef, barley, wine back on the export list to China? Uh, A couple of experts in this field will give you their thoughts shortly here on the Country Hour before news headlines at half past 12. And then a little later this hour, a couple of markets to get through. We'll head off to Mount Barker for all the details of the two-day Mount Barker cattle market. And then Danny Burkett along just before the news at one. And he's going to take a look at the wool market for you, taking a look at the eastern state sales and the sales here in the west, uh, both up this week. So Danny's probably pretty happy with that. He'll be along just before one o'clock. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the Maritime Union of Australia is hopeful a seven-day consecutive work stoppage at the Quinana Grain Terminal scheduled for next week can be avoided following a productive meeting held yesterday with the CBH Group. Over the past week, there have been 24-hour stoppages every 48 hours at the Quinana Grain Terminal as the workers continue to bargain for key non-financial work-related claims. Late last year, agreement was reached for a 5% wage increase for the workers. But the sticking point now is the right to representation at disciplinary meetings. Jeff Kassar is the Maritime Union of Australia's Assistance Branch Secretary in WA. Jeff, what progress was made at yesterday's meeting? Belinda, on the back of uh, a legal letter of concern that the union has served to CBH with regard to their previous conduct and in the context of recent media focus on the issue, CBH came to the room with a completely different mindset and I have to, I'm happy to report, um, the meeting was very positive and constructive. We made a lot of progress. We probably still remain apart on a number of issues, a far shorter list of issues that we're apart on. I've got a feeling, look, CBH has um, made themselves available over the weekend. They've made themselves available Monday. They've authorised a workforce meeting for the union to address the workforce on Tuesday morning at 7am and they've agreed to meet with us straight after that workforce meeting on Tuesday. So obviously this is in a, a mad rush to avoid the protected action that's coming up on Friday after the Australia Day public holiday and we are hopeful that we can reach a position that we might be able to avoid that strike action. At the moment, the one issue that both parties seem to be unable to take a back step from is the disciplinary meeting arrangements and whether a a union official or any representative, because it isn't automatically a, a union official, is able to represent an employee in that context. So that is the the key sticking point at this stage, the representation, the right to have representation at disciplinary meetings. How strongly does the workforce feel about that point? It's an important issue for the workforce. CBH's disciplinary process lacks consistency in the view of the workforce. 
it's not necessarily that uh, CBH automatically goes to the the worst conclusion. Uh, it's more about two people can commit the same offence and the outcomes will be completely different. And so the disciplinary process as an entire process has always been a claim from the workforce so that they can understand uh, and there's some sort of consistency about if you do this, it will lead to that and you can see a sort of progression through that process. The right to representation, which is what the claim has become, was a concession made by the workforce when CBH dug in on the disciplinary process. So the workforce said, oh, if, if, they, if we can't get the disciplinary process through, can we at least get the right to representation in meetings? We thought that that would, was a reasonable compromise. It was expressed by CBH originally that that sounded like a good compromise. Uh, they obviously got advice or they conferred outside of the meetings and turns out that it's a bridge too far for them. Is, is representation at disciplinary meetings commonplace in other parts of the co-op, in other parts of the CBH group? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's common throughout CBH, but it is available. There are parts of the CBH business that does have the disciplinary process, including the right to representation in meetings. The reason that the company has objected to this claim was originally articulated as we want consistency throughout the business. We pointed out there are areas of your business that enjoy a disciplinary process with right to representation in meetings. CBH has in the last week articulated to the workforce that the reason that they want to maintain the status quo in, with regards to representation at meetings is they believe that a union official could derail the integrity of an investigation. On those grounds, we offered another concession and said, well, in that case, how about employees have the right to representation in meetings, but CBH has a right to revoke that right if they believe that the integrity of the investigation is being threatened or uh, anybody is obstructing the natural course of justice. But they're still saying no. How does this negotiation or this dispute between the workers at Quinana, the grain terminal, and CBH sort of compare to other employers that you deal with when there's a pay or a working conditions issue? I've got to be quite honest. I, I, we very rarely, I don't remember ever being pushed towards industrial action over such an ideological issue. There's usually cost involved. Most employers will dig in if something's going to cost their company too much or it significantly restricts their managerial prerogative. This, I mean, as I've said, we, we've moved to a position where we're saying to the company, you have the right to revoke the representation in meetings if we're derailing the investigation. So it's not even based any longer on managerial prerogative or overly restrictive conditions. It's literally just seems to be a stamping of the foot and um, totally ideological. Well, over the w last week, there have been 24-hour stoppages every 48 hours at the Quinana Grain Terminal. The last of those stoppages was held yesterday. And as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, the next industrial action is set to continue with consecutive seven-day stoppage starting next week on the 27th of January. Do you think that can be avoided because I mean this is a peak shipping time for the cooperative and of course you know 
that consecutive seven-day stoppage would really throw a spanner in the works. Do you think it can be avoided? Look, I'm hoping that CBH are considering their position. As I've said, uh, CBH has authorised a union meeting with the workforce on Tuesday. I have no doubt that CBH is hoping that the workforce will drop the claim on the basis that they've got everything else. That is not the message that I've been getting from the workforce with regards to how they intend to vote on Tuesday. They've made it very clear to us, and I believe they've made it clear to management as well, that they intend to get this sorted out, this EBA. As I said, we've, we've raised it at every EBA for the last decade, but this time, you know, we're in a position where, uh, in our view, with everything being the way it is with CBH, the Black Sea being removed from the competition, record harvests, back-to-back record harvests. If we can't get this claim through now, we might as well just walk away and, and forget about it. Um, if we can't get it through now, we'll never get it through. Jeff, really good to get the update. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. Jeff Kassar, he's from the Maritime Union of Australia. And the CBH group agrees that yesterday's meeting with the union was productive, with parties working through those non-financial claims. CBH says it will continue to negotiate directly with the bargaining representatives and will meet again on Tuesday the 24th of January, as Jeff just told you. And the Grain Handler says it looks forward to another productive meeting and working towards a final agreement. Uh, As I said, if that doesn't happen, if they can't reach some sort of agreement, there is that seven-day consecutive stoppage that's planned to start from the 27th of January, so next week. It is a quarter past 12. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. A news headlines for you at half past 12. And an international relations expert thinks lobster will soon be back on the menu in China, but warns that it's not going to be an easy transition. Last week, Chinese diplomat Long Dinbin visited the Geraldton Fisherman's Cooperative and there's a nice photo of him holding up a lobster in one hand and giving the thumbs up in the other as he stands alongside co-op head Matt Rutter. So that sounds pretty promising, doesn't it? But as usual, the co-op isn't speaking about the visit or the relationships, but as it always says, it would love to get back in the Chinese market. International Relations Specialist at the Australian National University, Dr Darren Lim, has been following the informal lobster sanctions and says the visit is a promising sign that Australia's relationship is back on track with China. I think the visit by the Chinese envoy to the lobster farm is a very strong signal that this trade will become acceptable again. So I am optimistic that some lobster trade will resume pretty quickly. However, I would caution that this does not mean that things will return to normal. The nature of these kinds of informal sanctions is that they're sticky. They tend to melt away quite slowly because they, it takes time for officials across the entire system to understand that there has been a change and to respond to it. Mm. And we have numerous examples previously of other sanctioned industries from other countries, for example, South Korea with tourism, where even headline political agreements between leaders were not enough to, for barriers to come away very quickly, but it instead took months and indeed years. So given that it was more of a, an informal ban, do you expect that it, it will be an instant shift or are you, are you expecting, in your opinion, that really it will take time 
to kind of get trade up and running again once it is accepted? I think that there will be some headline resumption, that the, some shipments will be accepted and that there will be an understanding that more will come. But I would not expect that every that a, a lobster farmer could be confident that all of their product is immediately going to be accepted back into the Chinese market, that we would not get a resumption to 2019 levels, for example, um, very quickly. I think it would be a slow resumption with quite some frictions uh, in the short to medium term, even as the political relationship begins to improve. It's just the nature of the the bans themselves and the nature of the Chinese system makes it unlikely that we can get a full return to normal very quickly. What would contribute to those frictions that you mentioned? Uh, The frictions are in the sort of ordinary process of international trade, that when you're sending goods to another country, they need to be inspected, there needs to be paperwork, there are many officials that are involved in the clearance of that trade, as well as, of course, commercial operators, Chinese importers who need to be placing orders and arranging um, for these things to be shipped. So all of these things, processes, can be hampered if there remains belief within the system that Australian trade is still unacceptable. And a, a, you know, a visit by a Chinese envoy or even you know, some positive noises from the Chinese government in Beijing tend not to filter down through all parts of the system in a consistent and, and, and a rapid way. Rather, you'll get some first movers who are monitoring the situation very closely, who are desperate to get lobsters through, who will move first and who might be successful. But across the entire industry, it will just take longer, both on the bureaucratic side and I imagine also on the commercial side, for the trade to return to its its pre-pandemic, pre-dispute levels. Speaking pre-pandemic, I'm also interested to know what the disruption of the trade relationship has done overall to the value of Australian rock lobster. Resuming trade with China directly... Can fishermen expect the value to return to the height it was pre-pandemic? Wow, there are a number of factors uh, that go into the health of the market. And my expectation would be that most of those factors are pointing in the negative direction at this time. You've got a Chinese economy that is struggling with COVID and the post-COVID recovery. You've got continued crackdowns on corruption and on sort of the extravagance that can often go with a certain type of government and business culture, which would affect restaurant sales and and, and other sort of luxury goods like that. So without being an expert on rock lobster um, or lobster market generally, I would be bearish on, on, on all kinds of luxury goods in the sort of the short to medium term. Australian National University's Darren Lim speaking to Bridget Herman, 20 past 12. Well, the rock lobster industry isn't the only one who'd be happy to be sending product back into the Chinese market. Since 2020, there have been 11 Australian meat businesses suspended from selling meat to China, and there are still eight beef processors waiting for their import permits to be renewed. Professor Ben Lyon is an associate from the University of Southern Queensland. He grew up on a beef property and also spent 18 years living and working in China. So he speaks fluent Mandarin. And he agrees with Darren Lim, who you just heard from a moment ago, that resuming business as usual with China is still a work in progress. We've had these bannings before and they've been sporadic. 
Um, this time they've been a little bit long term for the companies um, in question and particularly in recent years. But the industry, like I said, has worked well and I think the indications of Penny Wong's that recent visit, um, I think the, you know, there's still a ways to go. But these things have been happening for a long time, the last sort of 30 decades since China opened um, to foreign imports and uh, it's just something we've learned to work with. It's not ideal. So you don't uh, think it's centrally motivated? You think it, there's just something uh, going on in the smallest? It's a local interpretation of a central motive of the cent of Beijing's wishes of what President Xi would like to see. So it's not coordinated centrally per se. So you have to elevate it to the um, back to Beijing via the right diplomatic channels and work it through. These are phytosanitary or process-driven um, things. They just happen to be looking out for Australian beef closely. But a lot of all of our imports or all food imports, particularly run the, the gauntlet of Chinese customs, I'm afraid. So is there anything to fear in terms of that technology transfer or that direct you know, exporting of product from Chinese-owned properties in Australia to China? Are we being cut out somehow? Are we being used? Well, I think value-adding agriculture and, and extracting the strongest value or the higher value um, is always a challenge in any market, export market. We export 70% of what we produce in agriculture. Getting away from being dig and deliver is a big cultural thing for us as Australians. I think that on your question around the Chinese and the xenophobic thing, yeah, we do tend to overreact to some of those things, but I'd also be wary. There are some very strong links in some of these Chinese investments back to the central government, and they are under a strong coercion potential from Beijing. So I think it is does pay to be wary with Chinese investment, particularly in some strategic assets, but we do that with all foreign investment. Our foreign investment review board, is, the protocols are quite strong, whether it's China or any nation. So I think if we just treat them as we treat every other nation, we will be fine. There's no, we're not targeting China in any way. And I think that's a very pragmatic and mature outcome. I mean, our protocols are quite strong. We've toughened up the, the FERB stuff, but Australians can't buy land in China. And <laughs> there was a lot of angst about Australia demanding that Chinese be tested for COVID when they came here, but, but Australians have to be tested before they go into China. It's, it's you know, the policies in reverse are far stronger than our own. Yeah, that's, that's part, of the, uh, part of the diplomatic tussle, I suppose. I mean, there's a lot, been a lot of irrational Chinese sort of edicts. If you look at the live cattle market back to you know, recent times, the Blue Tongue line that goes from sort of diagonally across Australia from north to the south, we don't have Blue Tongue. Um, we have the vector, but um, that's... And in the wool industry, you know, we lengthen strength test our wool objectively. In China, they do it with a steel ruler. So there's always these conflicts around that thing and ways of doing things differently. It is a challenge. Professor Ben Lyon, he was speaking to David Clawton, 24 past 12 on the ABC, right across Western Australia. Well, the only Western Australian board member on the new national cattle industry body, Cattle Australia, was encouraged or maybe cajoled by his wife to put up for the new board or shut up. James Bowie is a cattle producer from Bridgetown in WA's southwest. He recently attended the first board meeting of the organisation where he's planning to be a voice for the whole state. It's obviously a time of uh, incredible, if you like, opportunity for Australian agriculture. It's also a time when we face some, some pretty significant headwinds. One of the things that's really important for us in Cattle Australia is to come together uh, collaboratively and basically alliance one voice and work on a number of, uh, of the key issues. 
Look, those key issues right at the um, top of front of mind, you've got things like foot and mouth disease, you've got a lot of supply chain issues, and then obviously in the north at the moment, you've seen these, um, you know, these terrible floods that people have been having to deal with. So there's a range of different things. Our purpose is basically to sort of work at that national level to help uh, ensure that, um, you know, the government has, uh, is setting the right priorities around uh, what it needs to do in this area as well. And of course, the levies that the industry pays on the sale of every one of its animals is directed to the right areas. What do you hope to achieve in the position? One of the things that I want to do is just make sure that you know Western Australia's voice is heard, and I just want to make sure that, as a as a sector, we can basically make sure that we've got a, you know, a productive, profitable, and sustainable cattle industry. If I can do that and work with our local WA farmers and the Pastoral Growers Association, and there's other groups as well, like the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association, yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. Now you're based in the southwest. How will you represent the state's industry as a whole, including the northern half? Well, I suppose one of the key things is that under Cattle Australia. It's not just sort of like Western Australia. We've got sort of zones and how Australia has been divided up into, if you like, nationally, there's a, there's a number of uh, sort of livestock research councils. So in Western Australia, we've got the Western Australian Livestock Research Council. My zone is basically sort of up to about the Pilbara. And then we've got some other board members that basically represent across the, uh, the northern side. But I work very closely with them and, uh, and on the board as well. For example, we've got a guy, Adam Coffey, he is currently based in Queensland, but um, you know he spent a considerable amount of his time working in the Kimberley. One of my first priorities will be working with Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association and the PGA, who are the on-ground resources at the moment, helping deal with the impacts of the flooding up in the, up in the Kimberley. So one of the things that we can do is help ensure that at a national level, as we move into the recovery phase for this that we can sort of work with our federal counterparts and, and state um, representatives as well to try and ensure that the infrastructure upgrades are done so that impacts from future floods are somewhat mitigated or at least minimised. Why do you want to be in this position? I suppose one of the, the main things um, people might not be aware of is I've spent most of my life working in the resources sector. About five years ago, I got the opportunity to come back to the farm. But one of the things I really want to do is make sure that we've got a, a sector that like, like our kids, you know, my kids, can be involved with in, in the future. I've been following the, the transition of you know, Cattle Council Australia into Cattle Australia, and when I saw that there was an opportunity to put up my hand to, to be on the board, and, and one of the changes was, was about making sure that any producer could put up their hand if they wanted to do, I thought, look, why not? And, uh, and I had a conversation with my wife, <laughs> and one of the things that she said is that, I'm always sort of talking about what we might need to do here and what we might need to do there. And she basically said, well, look, if I don't, uh, if I don't put my hand up, uh, you know, <laughs> I better basically uh, shut up. So, you know, get, in, get involved. Why do you think this board is important? I think it's important because if we've got like an industry that crosses all of Australia, it's so important that we like go to government with one voice. It's very easy to be splintered and, and, and fractured. So, you know, and that doesn't matter whether it's the cattle industry, resources sector or anything. Like the most important thing is to like work out what are your key priorities. And that's just literally what we're doing right now as a board. We've met once, we've had our initial meeting, we're in the process of appointing a new CEO. And then we'll be working on continuing to work with the issues that are, uh, that are currently at play. James Bowie, he is a board member for Cattle Australia.
uh, representing Western Australia, being a local from Bridgetown here in WA's southwest. It is 29 past 12 and Herlin Kaur is here with an update from the newsroom. What's happening, Herlin? Good afternoon, Belinda. In the headlines, a trio charged with the murder of a Midland teenager have been remanded in custody after facing the Perth Magistrates Court. Brodie Lee Palmer, Mitchell Colin Forth and Alicia Louise Gilmore were charged yesterday over the death of 15-year-old Cassius Turvey, who died in October last year. He was allegedly attacked on his way home from school by 21-year-old Jack Stephen James Brearley, who's been in custody after being charged with murder. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says there are encouraging signs the Chinese government could drop its trade ban on some Australian products. China imposed trade restrictions on Australian goods, including coal, lobsters and wine in 2020. Some reports say Chinese importers are now confident Australian lobsters could be back in China by the second half of the year. And in tennis, Greek star Stefanos Tsitsipas has beaten Dutchman Talon Greekspor in their Australian Open third round clash at Rod Laver Arena. More news is coming up at one o'clock. Helen, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate that. And still to come between now and the news at one o'clock, a couple of markets to get through today. Being a Friday, of course, we've got the uh, wool market wrap with Danny Burkett. He'll be along with those details. And also the two-day Mount Barker cattle market. And we'll go through the wiener sale from yesterday, the trade sale today. Tracy Kilner has those details on the yarding and the prices for you. And also, very shortly, just taking a look at the bee situation. Remember all the talk last year about the bee pest, the varroa mite that was found in New South Wales? And it seems that there's been some real progress there because beekeepers from a large part of that state will soon be able to move their bees across some state borders, so into parts of South Australia, Victoria and Queensland. So we'll talk about that and also the implications for Western Australia. What does all that mean? You'll find out shortly. And you will also meet the owners of a cow that's just won Australia's grand champion for interbreed. And apparently the thing that got her over the line was her stunning udder. You'll meet the owners from West Gippsland in Victoria between now and the news at one. In just a moment, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Twenty-eight to one. You're listening to the Country Hour on the ABC, right across Western Australia. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology, and Bob Tarr is with you this afternoon. Bob, can you take us for a look around the north of the state this afternoon into the weekend, and what's in store for early next week? Yeah, sure. So we have a um, pretty slow-moving trough across the northern part of the state, and. Uh, 
pretty moist air up through that region. So as a result, there is plenty of shower and thunderstorm activity, and that extends right down through most of the Pilbara, actually. It's uh, one of the first uh, real bursts of um, summertime thunderstorm activity that we've seen into the Pilbara. So, um, yeah, we will have those showers and storms continuing right through the weekend. Um, and there is some potential for uh, damaging winds and heavy rainfall, especially across the inland part of the Pilbara as we go into uh, today, tomorrow, uh, and maybe even Sunday. Uh, and also very isolated heavy rainfalls across the Kimberley. So nothing like what we saw previously in the Fitzroy Valley, but uh, each day you could have the isolated quite heavy fall uh, from some slow moving thunderstorms through that region, uh, most likely over northern and western parts of the Kimberley. Uh, and then we may see activity start to uh, ease a little bit as we go into the early to middle part of last of next week, especially over inland parts. But um, yeah, it looks pretty seasonable for this time of year across the north of the state. And what have you got for the southwest land division? Yeah, sure. So uh, the trough extends down the west coast uh, and is drawing down some heat and some moisture. So as a result, we could see thunderstorms extending down into the uh, mainly inland parts of the Midwest today. And uh, could be some isolated damaging wind gusts with those thunderstorms if they do manage to fire this afternoon. And then over the weekend, uh, some moisture is going to move further south down the trough. So we could see showers and storms right down into the southwest corner. So uh, it is going to be pretty hot uh, through that region. Temperatures anywhere from about 4 to 8 degrees above normal through the southwest corner. So uh, pretty, pretty feeling pretty hot out there, and there will be the, the risk of thunderstorms across that region. So uh, maybe some, ice, some uh, elevated fire dangers during the weekend across the uh, southwest of the state with the risk of uh, some lightning. Uh, from those thunderstorms. Uh, and then as we go into the early part of next week, the risk of thunderstorms looks like it will decrease. We'll get a little bit of an injection of drier air into the region, but still looks to remain pretty warm down through the southwest corner, at least out to about Tuesday of next week, and then maybe a little bit of a cool cool uh, southerly change as we go into the middle of next week. Uh, further to the east, uh, out through the Esperance region, uh, looks like pretty nice uh, weekend with dry weather and uh, some increasingly offshore winds, so will be warming as we go into the early part of next week. And across the gold fields, uh, again, pretty benign conditions. Not likely to see any rainfall through there and temperatures fairly close to normal for this time of year. And then the warnings this afternoon, Bob. Yeah, sure. So we don't have any uh, severe thunderstorm warnings yet, but uh, keep an eye out as there may be some uh, coming later on. Uh, and otherwise, we just have a strong wind warning for the Lewin Coast, Albany Coast, and Esperance Coast. And then later on, we are likely to have some uh, some fire weather warnings for tomorrow, but we'll see what areas those will be in. But it is likely to be hot enough for parts of the Southwest Land Division that the, the, those will be issued later today. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate that. On the Country Hour... 24 minutes to one. So taking a look now at the rainfall figures. So a look back at the last 24 hours to nine o'clock this morning, checking five mils and over. Starting in northern and eastern forecast districts and the Kimberley, firstly. Bedford Downs Airstrip, 13. Curtin Aero, 11. Debessa, 9. Derby Aero, 8. Diggers Rest, 12. Drysdale River Station, 19. Fitzroy Crossing Aero, 6. Halls Creek Airport, 13. Kachana, 6. Lansdowne, 9. Liveringa Station, 5. Mandora, 7. Margaret River Airstrip, 14. Mullabulla Airstrip, 14.
Mount Amherst 7, Mount Barnett 28, Mount Krause 14, Mount Winifred 19, Napier Downs 36, Ruby Plains 18, Siddons Creek 9, Thedder 5, Wijana Gorge 6, Wyndham Aero 28, and Yampi Sound had 27. Moving into the Pilbara, Bonnie Downs 6, Kulawanya 64, Indy 16. Karajini North had 36, Mount Florence 83, Mount Stewart 8, Parabadu Aero 42, Pardu 18, Red Hill 31, Sherlock 6, Yaline 26 and Yarry 19. Into the Gascoigne, Challa 16, Q had 50, Dalgetty Downs 18, Hill Springs 17, Minina 12, Mount Gibson 5, Mount Narria 20, Murchison 18, Payne's Find 7 and Yarraquin 43. And on the islands, Barrow Island Airport 9. Then into the southwest land division for the central west, Ballandane 18, Canna East 8, Gutha West 16, Latham 6 and another rain station in Latham had 10, Morrowa Airport 5, Morrowa 7, Perenjury Aero 5, South Homewood 8, Woolgarong 10, Yandanooka 18. The Central Wheat Belt, Ben Cubbon 10, and another point in Ben Cubbon had 8, so between 8 and 10, Ajanding 6, Goodlands 5, Muckenbuden 18, Muckenbuden Aero 17, Nungaran 5, Training 7, Training West 8, and Wongan Hills had 12. You're with Belinda Varaschetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Uh, you'll get a really good look at the markets just before one, looking at the wool market and the two-day Mount Barker cattle market. First up, though, Australia's battle with the pea pest varroa mite is moving to a new stage because beekeepers from a large part of New South Wales will soon be able to move their bees across some state borders. So New South Wales is currently divided into different coloured zones depending on detection and all states and territories have now agreed to declare the lowest risk zone, that's the blue zone in New South Wales, varroa mite free. Steve Fuller from the New South Wales Apris Association says South Australia, Victoria and Queensland are going to reopen their borders to bees in the next few weeks. They uh, need to still do surveillance. They still need to um, apply for permits and traceability is a must in case something is detected later on. So they've got to abide by whatever's put in place. So if the government says... DPI says that we can do this under a permit, then do everything. Do your washes, uh, make sure you report anything unusual, and this way we can maintain our clean bill of health. What will it take for uh, free movement to be possible for people even in the purple and the red zones? Um, We've got to actually show that we are absolutely clean. So that's three years. Three years of no detections, nothing. Would you say the industry is almost back to normal then with this announcement? No. No, we've got a long way to go yet. And this is don't let your guard down. This is where uh, if you're going to become commonplace, then you will find that if if we have missed it, it could bite us on the rear end real quick. 
Steve Fuller, he's from the New South Wales Apris Association, speaking to David Clawton, 20 to 1. Well, what does all this mean for Western Australia? Will bees and raw honey products be able to be imported into the state from the New South Wales Blue Zone? Well, the short answer is no. WA is bordered to importing raw bee products, including queen bees, is firmly closed and has been closed since 1977, so for 45 years. Bee Industry Council of WA Chief Executive Liz Barber says Western Australian bees are the healthiest in the world and they'll play a key role in the nation's recovery from this varroa incursion. This sort of closure has been so good that we don't actually have European fowl brood here. And in the southwest, we don't have hive beetle, which are two major sort of um, diseases of honeybee that have really hit um, them, hit the east coast, which we don't have here at all. So we really are carrying um, the, I suppose, the honour that we've actually got the healthiest bees in the world. And it's very rare. There's nowhere else. You know, I mean, there's little pockets that might have places where they don't have varroa and they have, well, they might still have European fowl brood, but there's nowhere that doesn't have these major diseases of both, well, pests and diseases of varroa, not having varroa and not having European fowl brood and not having hive beetles. So, yeah, we sort of hold this badge and we're very proud of it and we're really working hard to keep that as as a goal. How long has the border been closed? Since 1977. And then what was really interesting is that when the border closed, because what the concern was, was that, you know, the, if you know about Apis mellifera, which is the honeybee, it comes from a number of areas around the world. And we had been bringing in bees, you know, from all these different spots because they, they're different. What we were really worried about was if we had captured the genetic variation, there was a genetic study undertaken um, to check that we did have that variation and we had we had captured it all. So when we closed our borders, we knew we were safe, but what we had to do was make sure that we maintained that variation. So we actually have the oldest bee breeding program here in Western Australia, and it's called the Better Bee Breeding Program. And it's the famous one that actually goes across to Rotnest Island every year. So all the beekeepers get a barge, they go across to Rotnest Island and they do their breeding there. So no bees can be moved into WA, but is export of genetics a industry for Western Australia? Yes, and that is actually what we're building up. So one of the things that we are very focused on at the moment is to help the East Coast. So what happened when Varroa arrived in New Zealand was that the first arrival was exactly the same as what happened here. The first Varroa that came in had no viruses. So the biggest problem with Varroa, remember it's a tick, and the biggest thing that you're worried about was something like that that goes for your bodily fluids is that they introduce viruses. And it's the viruses that really, you know, cause the slow decline of a population. So that's what we're really trying to stop. I mean, whilst we have varroa, okay, that's bad in itself. But even worse is if that virus and they start spreading viruses. So you can get these terrible viruses like the deformed wing virus, which means that the bee can't actually fly. So it can't forage. It just literally sits there and actually starves and dies. It's just horrible. So 
what so the so the incursion that we have at the moment has no viruses and that's the big that's if, you know out of all the, the the doom and gloom that's actually you know one of the sort of silver linings and um, so what we're trying to do here in western australia is because we're the only place in australia now that is absolutely short of not having varroa at the moment is that we're trying to build up our breeding and our queen export so that we can actually help the East Coast and then, of course, help others around the world. Because there's a shortage of bees. It doesn't matter which way you look. Um, there's a shortage of bees around the world totally. So trying to build up our systems to actually be able to help others meet their pollination requirements using honeybees. So that's actually what we're trying to do here. Is that potentially quite a lucrative industry because queen bees they're expensive aren't they and every industry needs a regular supply but they're expensive for a reason i don't know if you've actually seen what the process is to produce queens no so it takes a great skill to produce them and it's a very labor intensive thing to do so the first thing that we, i mean one of the things that we need to build up is that skill when you do the first breeding of the queen that's a true art cross breed and then what the beekeepers do then is make sisters of that queen. So they almost like do, um, if you were talking about plants, it would be propagation. So you actually propagate those queens and bulk them up. So you do the crossing that happens at Rotnest. So those queens are exceedingly valuable. And, and normally beekeepers don't really sell those. They sell the sisters of those queens. There's all sorts of things that you sell. So the other thing that happens is that they do what we call packaged bees. And you can actually sell litres of bees. So there's certain times, as you know, when we've had our canola flowering and we've had, you know, with all the so spring flowering with the canola as well, we actually have this huge boom of bees here in Western Australia. And, of course, a lot of it actually goes feral, which is what we're trying to stop. If we can actually capture those and stop them going feral and actually export them, it will be a lot better, you know, even conservation-wise for us to do that. So that's actually what we're sort of looking for, and we're looking for markets. So then the other thing that's actually is selling what we call a nucleus hives or nukes. So that's basically a small hive that has a number of workers in there as well as the queen. So basically as soon as another beekeeper receives that, they've literally – can build up and build up into a hive. It takes them a bit of while, but they can. So there's different sort of ways of actually exporting bees, but it exists. And we actually do, we already do export honeybees from here. We, we At the moment, we're exporting to Canada, but there's, you know, there's lots of other markets. So Bikwa are very focused on actually getting that up and running and actually helping the East Coast meet their requirements. Bee Industry Council of WA Chief Executive Liz Barber with Lucinda Joyce. 13 to 1. Well, the Grains Research and Development Corporation is committing $17.5 million over four years to Grains Australia. Established in 2020, Grains Australia is an umbrella-type organisation, which, among other things, puts the classification work of Wheat Quality Australia and Barley Australia under one roof. CEO Richard Simonitis says the organisation helps the nation's grain industry respond quickly to export demand. Grains Australia is responsible for making sure that the industry good activities that are required for the grains industry to be effective, so that includes classification, market access and market information and education, run in a coordinated way. So these activities have been there 
in the past, but we've been relying on goodwill of different entities for things to progress forwards. There's never been the coordination. So the purpose of Grains Australia is to bring it all together in one place so that we can coordinate the activities and get it happening in a way that brings a market opportunity to the grower quicker than it would otherwise happen without a coordinated approach. So getting something from opportunity to a market reality in a three to five year time frame rather than a 10 or 12 year time frame. You were previously the CEO of the Australian Exports Grain Innovation Centre, which works on on market access uh, and making sure Australian grain meets the needs of customers and end users across the world. Grains Australia also works on on export topics. Is there some crossover in the work of the two organisations? The work of AGIC has been uh, important and will continue to be important and they carry most of that expertise. Clearly, Grains Australia will need to work closely with them and we'll be investing into that work as well. So the working relationship is very strong already and it will continue to be so. It's an important element of creating value for growers. So I guess an example of that is that Grains Australia has been able to attract over a million dollars of investment through the ATMAC program. And that has gone into diversification of malt barley markets, for example, and stimulating feed markets across Southeast Asia. And so while it's a Grains Australia project, the actual delivery of the work has been by AGIC. So that's the sort of working relationships that we'll see continue into the future. And it can only improve AGIC because Grains Australia, through its council structures, will have a stronger mandate and it will also be able to coordinate the activities and how they align through market access and classification. This funding is over four years. What are the key things that you'd like to achieve in in those four years? So obviously we want to continue bringing the other commodities into Grains Australia. So Pulse Council, for example, getting the oats classification system framework fully built At the moment, that's fairly rudimentary. Uh, We've started work on establishing a pulse classification framework as well, but then also working really hard on what are the market opportunities that we can go after. So getting those connections through AGIC, through the trade, through the growers uh, and through our own relationships and then prioritising, you know, what's the size of the prize what's going to have the biggest impact for Australian growers and steering the investment towards that. CEO of Grains Australia, Richard Simonitis with Lucinda Jose. Nine to one. Well, the owner of the cow that's just won Australia's grand champion for interbreed said it could have been her stunning udder that separated her from the rest of the field. The winner was announced at International Dairy Week, which was held at Tatura, about 180 kilometres north of Melbourne this week. Carl Munden and Imogen Stenner from Victoria's West Gippsland took home the top prize with their Ayrshire cow. We never thought this would happen, but she pulled through for us and made a huge effort for us. So, yeah, it's been great. What kind of work did you put into it? Uh, well, she's been getting fed twice a day, every day, um, on a special diet, and she's been out and getting as much hay and grass as she can eat and 
We've just been working with her. She's been getting washed daily for the last month and just getting her prepped and calmed down on the halter and everything. So she's had a lot of work put into her, but we didn't think she'd get quite this far. We thought we'd pull up this morning, but she's she's gone all the way. So. And you're really emotional about the win. How are you feeling? <laughs> Me? I'm just... Oh, there's just no words to how to feel. Um, you do all the work and eventually it pays off and it's just a great feeling. And what gave her her edge? Oh, she's just an incredibly correct young cow for the Ayrshire breed. She's a bit bigger than most of the three-year-olds and she's got an absolutely stunning udder on her. The, the height and width of the rear udder just gets her across the line every time and she just does everything right. She walks well, she... She eats well. She does everything that you wanted to do to get her ready for the show ring to make life easy. She's a great cow to work with. So she's got a beautiful nature? Yeah, yeah. She's a real pet at home. She comes up for a scratch, and if you go too slow to open the gate for where her feed is, she'll bowl you over and make sure you're out the way. (laughs) And for a winning cow, what do you give it as a treat? What is she going to be doing now? (laughs) She'll get, get home and she'll get alone own rugs when we get home to make sure she doesn't get sunburnt from being clipped off and stuff like that but she'll just get a bit extra feed for a while and be looked after that's about all we can do for her so it's not like a dog you don't give them a cheeseburger or no. a ice cream she, she might get a carrot or something later on i think she's just happy to yeah. be a cow again <laughs> not just show cow to go home and be in the paddock, so. yeah and what's next for you both oh just get over this, um, get her home, get them settled and get back get back into running the farm, get everything caught up that we've had to put off while we've been here this week and um, go back to normal life again. Yep, it's back to work. Carl Munden and Imogen Stenner, who are from Victoria's Gippsland, winning the Grand Champion Interbreed at International Dairy Week. Six to one to the markets now. And first stop is the two-day Mount Barker cattle market. At yesterday's weaner sale, 1,947 head of cattle were penned for sale. And at today's trade sale, there were 270 head. So both sales were up in numbers this week. Tracy Kilner, let's start with the weaner sale. How did it go? Hi, Belinda. Heavyweight steer calves again dominated the yarding with over 460 calves weighing in at over 380 kilos. Prices trended up on the heavyweight steers with eastern states and local feedlots vying for the quality pens on offer. Heavyweight heifers were in demand from restockers chasing replacements. The lighter weight calves fluctuated with export buyers selective on breeds. Lightweight steers topped at 536 cents while heavyweight heifers topped at 460 cents to restockers. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 320 to 496 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 426 to 486 cents. Lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 424 to 496 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 390 to 536 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos made from 348 to 440 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos sold from 390 to 460 cents. Lighter weights between 280 to 330 kilos made 360 to 454 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 336 to 412 cents a kilo. Today's trade sale. 
prices trended up on all categories with demand and an additional processor present. The outing was dominated by good lines of trade weight cattle selling to a top of 350 cents to processors and feeder lines topped at 424 cents a kilo. Heavy cows lifted 40 cents selling to 280 cents and heavy bulls gained to top at 260 cents a kilo. A pen of my grey PTIC heifers sold for $2,200 by appraisal. Bullocks weighing over 750 kilos made 310 cents. Lighter weights sold from 300 to 328 cents. Grind steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos sold for 322 to 388 cents. And lighter weights made from 340 to 408 cents. Grind heifers weighing under 540 kilos sold from 280 to 358 cents. And the heavier weight heifers made 310 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold from 220 to 280 cents, while store lines returned 180 to 238 cents to processors, and restockers paid from 296 to 308 cents for the younger aged cows. Heavy bulls sold from 200 to 260 cents, averaging 238 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much, Tracy. Checking the results of this week's wool market now. The eastern market indicator is up eight cents to close at 1,341 cents a kilogram clean. And the western market indicator is up 20 cents to finish at 1,487 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what did you make of this week's market? A very similar pattern to last week in Fremantle on the first day on Tuesday. It saw the increases pretty much across all microns, and on the Wednesday that consolidated its position. In Fremantle, 18 microns quoted up 30 to close at 1900. 19's also up 30 to close at 1660. 20 microns were up to up 15.25 on the close. Sorry, the clock, that was 35 up for the week. 21s, 30 cents dearer to close at 14.50. So we had good even spread of increases across all the microns, pieces and bellies. The fine end of the market, 45 clean dearer, the balance 5 to 10 dearer. Locks, stains, crutchings, fully firm for the week. Lambs and wieners once again performing very, very well, remaining firm on the back of probably 12 to 16 months of very, very solid market. So a great result for the wool market. $69 $69 million worth of wool traded out of Australia this week. And the buyers? No surprises this week. We had tech wool trading, but they did take 21% of the fleece wool, merino fleece wool, on offer across the country. That is a very large chunk of wool for one particular buyer. Endeavour Wool Exports, Morris Wool, third place. Melilla, Chinese company, pretty much owned government company, taking 9%, so it's great to see them in the top four. But... um. Tech wool trading, 21% of merino fleece wool. Very strong position in the market from tech wool. And what's in store for next week, Danny? We have Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle. We have 46,500 bars on the market. Just given the way the market's opened up in the previous two weeks with some reasonable size offerings, it sets us up very, very well as we go into next week. Danny, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Danny Burkett going through the wool market. It's up this week, up $0.08 in the east and in the west, up $0.20 to finish at $1,487 a kilo clean. Great to talk to you. Time for the news, 1 o'clock.